Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is not going to be the most fun of episodes. Of course, the NFL season over. We're still in that kind of in-between period, post-All-Star break and pre-post-season for the NFL, make that the NBA and the NHL. I am very happy to say that we are very close to the Eastern Hockey League playoffs. I am thrilled about that. But of course, we talk a lot more about pro and college sports here. And we'll be focusing a lot this week, this episode, on just the anger and frustration around both sides of the table, both sides of the, both sides of the negotiating table for Major League Baseball at their meetings in Jupiter, Florida, that have continued this past week. They had set a deadline for Monday. That was, that was February 28th at 5 o'clock. They did not reach that deadline. Then they pushed it back to Tuesday, March 1st at 5 o'clock, and they did not meet that deadline. And now Major League Baseball has canceled the first two series of the regular season, the first seven games, after failing to meet Monday's deadline, then pushing back to that Tuesday deadline, meaning spring training will start no earlier than March 12th, and opening day will be no sooner than April 7th. Uh, the the I will say that this uh, part of this is not the end of the world because I honestly think the season should also be reverted to 154 games. A lot of a lot of people may not know that the MLB season was 154 games. That the regular season was 154 up until uh, the last year was not, the last year they had it was 1960. That was actually a source of contention the next year, 1961. Roger Maris broke Babe Ruth's single-season home run record. Really still holds the record when you consider that. The guys who broke it after that were Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa. Uh, but Maris did it in not as controversial a fashion, but more controversial for the times. Uh, he did not hit 61 home runs in 154 games, but he did hit it in 162 games. Ruth had hit 60 and 154. But I think that it should be 154 games, and that's just me as sort of a baseball purist. I like a shorter season anyway. I've said this with the NFL too. I'm not a huge fan of that extra game, et cetera, et cetera. But for the league, I think there is a good argument for it, that how it would benefit the league. Because one, it would or very well could reduce these opening day games in winter weather situations. We have seen over the years in New York and Detroit, Denver, I believe Minneapolis, we've seen winter weather and snow take over, maybe not even opening day, but take over the first couple of weeks of the MLB season. We, we all know snow can continue into April when it comes to Chicago in particular. It, it's not the best. And, Everybody had been talking about in the 2020 season how they were going to keep the teams down in Florida at the beginning of the pandemic just because it would be easier, it'd be nicer anyway. So that's one thing. It also keeps the World Series from pushing to November, which, again, I, as incredible as the Mr. November home run is, the whole drama behind that, the only reason that one was pushed back in the first place, by the way, that was the first World Series ever to be played in the month of November at all. 
that was only pushed back because of extraordinary and incredibly unfortunate and tragic circumstances. It was pushed back 10 days because of the September 11th attacks. And Major League Baseball had extended the playoffs a bit, started the season a bit later in following years. It's gone into November a few times. And I'm just not a huge fan of that. Again, as sort of a baseball purist. But it keeps the World Series from pushing to November. And on top of that, Major League Baseball would have more flexibility to increase the number of postseason teams if it wished and increase the number of postseason games. They could start the postseason a bit sooner by cutting it down to 154 games. That is actually That was actually part of Major League Baseball's latest proposal. We'll discuss that a little bit later on. Uh, and one more thing, I think it might make more money from advertisers and ticket revenue. Because yes, there will be eight fewer games for each team, but a lot of times we will see not empty ballparks, but play ballparks that do not sell that well, especially if a team is struggling later in the season. You know, we've and we've especially seen it in Oakland and in Tampa, but we see it even in New York, even in Los Angeles. Some of the the, the great ball, uh, well, maybe not Boston per se. That's also because Fenway Park only seats, I think, a little under forty thousand. But so many places do not sell out consistently. And I think making games more of a premium by cutting it down to 77 home games instead of 81, I think that ups the tempo, ups the excitement a little bit and the anticipation, and you would get more people to go. I think that's I think that's another thing. You could also increase the prices a little bit if you wished. And also, I saw something, this is kind of on topic, I suppose. I had been watching something, just because I'm a huge fan of his, uh, of Conan O'Brien, and this is going to seem very off-topic, but it does make sense. So, there was an interview that I had seen uh, from a few years ago, I'm not sure quite when, but it was within the last decade for sure, and it was a Vanity Fair interview with... Uh, an interview with Conan O'Brien and with Kevin uh, Kevin Riley, who, at least at the time, I'm not sure where he is now, but at least at the time, had been one of the head honchos at uh, TBS and TNT, so the Turner Networks. He's been at a lot of different networks. He was at FX. He was at NBC for quite some time. As a matter of fact, if you're a real comedy nerd or if you're a fan of the show, he was instrumental in keeping the American version of The Office on the air. Particularly, at, particularly after the struggles of the first season. But much of this discussion and of this summit was about the business side of entertainment. So Kevin Riley had discussed that Conan O'Brien's show, his most recent and his last late-night television show, which was on TBS, they had reduced the number of advertisements or maybe not for his show in particular, but for TBS in general, they had reduced the number of advertisements. And because of that, one, you would appease the the audiences. The audiences would be more happy, tested better. And you could also increase the price of each individual ad because things go up as a premium. They become more premium, and people become more focused in so few... Ads. Advertisers really want to pay more for it. 
So I think that could help Major League Baseball if they could do some research into that. I don't know how. Look, I don't. I don't claim to be uh, a marketing and advertising genius, but I I think that could help. That's just one way that I can point that out. So that's a quick aside. But we come back to the work the work stoppage itself. This is the first work stoppage in Major League Baseball since the 1994 strike, which was also the last stoppage to delay the start of a season, which bled into the early portion of what would have been the 19 the what would have been the early portion of the 1995 season. The Major League Baseball Players Association went on strike in August of 1994. They lost the World Series, but some people might not realize that they did not lose the entire season. They played about 75-80% of that regular season, they just did not play the World Series. They did not play the playoffs. Now, the difference between this stoppage and that stoppage is that this is an owner's lockout, whereas this 1994 was a player's strike. There's also a player's strike in 1981 that did not put a hold of the World Series. There have only been two times where the World Series has not been played since Major League Baseball uh, was founded, since the American League and National League joined forces in 1903. One was in 1904, and the New York baseball giants faced off against the Bo- were, were scheduled to face off against the Boston Red Sox in the World Series, but there was an argument. I can't remember. I don't know quite what it was, but I, I remember that it was an argument between John McGraw, famous Hall of Fame manager of the Giants, and Ben Johnson the president of the American League. It may have had to do with the superiority of one league over the other. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, that World Series did not take place. But of course, that was that would have only been the second World Series. 1994, there was the strike, and this was the first mo- really modern World Series to be canceled. There was also a strike in 1981. There have been nine work stoppages in Major League history, including this one. There was uh, Most notably, I remember there was a strike in 1981 that put a hold to the middle of the season, and then Major League Baseball had to come back and pretty much say, they, they had to reschedule the postseason to a point that this was the first year they ever had the division series, and the, the only year they had it until 1995. Because of, uh, they, they really wanted to incentivize the teams that were in first place, uh, being in first place prior to, the strike, and then for after the strike. So believe it or not, I think it was the Cincinnati Reds who actually had the best record in baseball in 1981 and somehow did not make the playoffs because they didn't finish first in the first half or first in the second half. But anyway, that was a very, very strange time. So work stoppages can have a major impact. But this is the first time in 27 years, first time in 27 years that we have had a, or first time in 28 years that we've had the beginning to a stoppage. Now here's the thing. The offseason began in, what, end of October, beginning of November. Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association have been speaking for a few weeks or so. Truth is, they probably should have been speaking to each other from the beginning. They should have been at the negotiating table from the very start. But here's the thing. It took 16 hours of negotiating on Monday alone just for nothing to happen. 
They met again for much of Tuesday. Nothing happened. We also remember there were, in the last couple of weeks, meetings of no more than 10 to 15 minutes at a time. I don't understand why everyone is being so stubborn. Because it's not like anyone anyone at the negotiating table is, re is really suffering. Okay, because owners are still making money hands over, hand over fist. The league is still making tremendous amounts of money. The league made, uh, apparently, p made over $10 billion in 2019 alone. And that was about a... a, a a huge increase from about eight or so billion in 2015. So that's one argument. Uh, the league is making a lot of money. Uh, the other thing is player salaries on the other side. Player salaries are going down. Player salaries have dropped by about six percent during this uh, CBA. Gone down about two hundred to three hundred thousand. Uh, the average salary, the average salary for a major league baseball player, is still uh, quite a bit over four million dollars, which is that's perfectly fine. That's a far more than a uh, livable wage for anyone, and the median salary is still well over a million, but it has dipped about a half of a million dollars in the last six or seven years. Now, I would say that both sides were at fault, relatively speaking, when you consider that, uh, look, what, what's, the, what's the lowest livable wage? I, I don't know. It's got to be 30-something, 40-something, 50-something thousand dollars, I would think. The minimum pay in Major League Baseball in 2021 was $570,500. I could probably live on that uh, per year as an annual salary for the rest of my life. I think anyone could live on that uh, for the rest of their lives. Also, Major League Baseball had made the offer. Their most recent offer on the negotiating table before that deadline had been a minimum $700,000 salary for Major League Baseball players in the 2022 season. This is if the Players Association had accepted league's offer. This, is the this would have been the largest increase in league history from year to year in minimum pay. But obviously, for the owner's side, you can't have league revenue go up 30% while player salaries go down by about uh, the same percentage. I will say what I will say though is it is a bit ridiculous how how much the top portion of Major League Baseball makes. I'd been saying this. I said this when Alex Rodriguez got his contract, uh, not the early one. God knows I was too young for that. But the two thousand and two thousand eight or two thousand nine contract he got from the Yankees, where he was making I think thirty million dollars a year. I thought that was ridiculous then, and it. Payments have continued to balloon. So uh, the the average salary is certainly down, but I think the, the highest salary should be up. The truth is there should not be such a disparity 
between the highest salary and the lowest salary for major league players. Because there are some guys who are getting paid a couple million dollars to play the same amount of games as guys who are getting paid $30-35 million. Now, on the owner's side, I will say there there has to be a system. I think their biggest problem, and they're the place where they have given the least concession, has been service time. That has been a, a problem in this league, or it has been a noticeable problem in this league, probably since Chris Bryant came up into the major leagues, which I believe is 2015. Uh, there has to be a system to avoid manipulating service time. Of course, uh, the later a player's career officially begins, uh, the more the longer you have control over him uh, in, in terms of contracts, in terms of uh, monetarily. Now, ac- according to Major League Baseball's most recent proposal, players finishing first and second in Rookie of the Year voting would be considered having a full year of service time. Now, here's my suggested system. It might be outside the box. It might not be incredibly smart, but it's something. I would say perhaps if you don't call up a high draft pick or a major signee, let's say, uh, let's say, you know, a high draft pick, first, second round draft pick, or a player you sign for over, let's say if you give him a a, a starting salary, if you sign him internationally, of more than the league minimum, and you don't bring him up by April 15th, say hypothetically April 15th or May 1st, uh, to start the season, because of of course the the Cubs did not bring up Chris Bryant for a a couple of weeks, I, I, I think. So let's say if you don't call up a guy who was picked that high or who was signed for that much uh, using pool uh, bonus pool money by hypothetically April 15th or May 1st, an early point of the season, then you're not allowed to call up that person until the All-Star break. And if this person is that important to the organization, let's say you know it was like the Nationals trying to call up Juan Soto and... If you think that, you know, if you're going to say he's not ready for the major leagues, but you also think that secretly you're really just trying to manipulate service time and you think he's going to be crucial to the success of the team, but we can afford to lose a few games early on in the season, then you have that middle ground. You have, you know, this two and a half, three month period. Where if you think, oh, well, you know, if he's not developed by April 15th, May 1st, that you can't bring him up until the All-Star break. Otherwise, we think you're doing this on purpose. There has to be some sort of, of period like that. Is, is it perfect? No, it is not a perfect solution. Not a, not a prim and proper solution. But it's something to be suggested. Because if they've really been negotiating that long, then I, don't, I really don't know what they're doing. Uh, Major League Baseball also proposed uh, the universal designated hitter. Something, Another thing, as me as sort of a purist, I disagree with. I think it does remove some of the strategy from the game. Where I, I think with 
by removing the uh, the the hitting pitcher, one I think it it removes some of the defensive aspect of the game, and I, I think it removes the uniqueness of the National League and the uniqueness of the American League, really, in that National League, you have to think more with your gut. You have to make a gut decision when you're going to pull your pitcher for a pinch hitter. You need to play more small ball. I, I It makes it more statistically based than simply going by your gut. You're kind of making everybody go by the book if you go if you go with a universal designated hitter. Um, but here's here's the big thing: uh, Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association need to be in service of the fans more than anyone, within reason, because a lot of people are making money. Maybe some people are making more money than they should be, or some people are making less money than they should be, but everybody's making a lot of money. So, especially when there have been talks of the minor league system being torn apart, there's no excuse for what is happening right now at the negotiating table in Jupiter, Florida. The minor league baseball system is being torn apart, pulled apart. That hurts people in, in rural areas or mid- to small-sized cities without MLB teams. If you think about places like, if you, if you go to the upper Rocky Mountains, if you go to Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, if you go to the Great Plains and the Dakotas, you go to rural New England, northern New England, parts of the Carolinas, go into parts of the Deep South, or parts of, parts of the Nevada and Utah, places where you're not that close to a team, they need minor league baseball. Minor league baseball is a time filler. It's comforting. It is uh, it is home. It is even, in some ways, more of a home than a major league baseball team can create for some people. So that's one thing. And now... We could be in one of the worst times to not have baseball. Um, I know that people always say that baseball is, you know, baseball being America's national pastime, people always say that, and some people think it's, you know, it's cliche, and it's, you know, it's shtick, and it's just something that advertisers use to, to bring people into the ballpark. And I, I won't deny that. That's, in some ways, it's true, but... Baseball is as entwined with American culture as any other sport, as any other thing that we have. And not just within the... It really doesn't... It goes beyond the United States. It goes to Canada with the Blue Jays. And it goes to Japan, much of Latin America. It goes all over the world. And so, look, aside from World War II, this is probably one of the times where we need baseball the most. We are apparently still in the middle of a pandemic that seems more like a never-ending nuisance now because nobody can really decide you know, whether or not to wear a mask, where to wear a mask, where not to wear a mask, should we, wear, should we be wearing them at all. 
Is it okay to be unvaccinated? Do, do, is, are, are vaccines bad for us? Are, do we need to have them? I think, yes, we need to have them, but it's this, every news source is so conflicting. Every source from everywhere, news, public, private, government, etc., so conflicting and annoying. We're in the midst of the most prolonged and divided period in American politics and civics, or lack thereof, uh, in 50 years, probably. We're looking at the first major war, with the possible exception of the, of the Bosnian conflict in the 1990s. We're looking at the first major war to take place on the European continent since World War II, which has also led to gas prices here in the United States, the likes of which we have not seen since at least before the pandemic, uh, not to mention we're dealing with major inflation. Just give us baseball. That's what we need. Baseball, sports, sports in general, but baseball in particular is not just a pastime, it's the most beautiful diversion. It's wonder. It's, uh, you know, we've been taught this since childhood. Major League Baseball is a business, just like any other. But it must be in service of its fans. The fans are what keep the league going. Yes, baseball, once upon a time, was only an amateur activity. But the fans really are what keeps the league going. What keep the league going. We know how infuriated fans were following the strike in 1994. You would see people show up in 1995 with... You know, signs just calling out people for being cheapskates, essentially. We know how infuriated they were in 1994 and how infuriated they probably are now and will be when baseball returns. Look, fans account for all the ticket sales, all the cable subscription payments, and the advertisers account for the rest. Without fans, there is no baseball. There is no Major League Baseball and everyone at the negotiating ta table right now is just angering their clientele and their most passionate supporters. I, I, please, just we we all want baseball back. Even the people who don't care about baseball want baseball back. All right, we'll take a break. We will be back, and we'll discuss the rest of the sports week here on Sports in the Waiting Room. We're back, and there is actually one thing I would like to discuss that is baseball-related but not related to the negotiations. There was one pretty significant piece of news within baseball this week outside of the negotiating table, and that was that Derek Jeter stepped down as Miami Marlins' CEO and minority owner. He owned about 4% of the organization. Jeter spent five years with the Marlins, uh, front office and ownership. Now, I will say five years is a pretty short time to be an owner, whether majority or minority. Fairly short time to be a CEO of any company, but in particular a Major League Baseball team. And even though the Marlins did not win the World Series in that time, did not reach the World Series in that time, I think it's actually a fairly successful tenure. 
they, you don't have to look at the positives. Look at the positives here. The well, first off, let's talk about the split. The the decision between Jeter and the remainder of the organization appears to be based in differences regarding the future of the team. There were no further specifics regarding that when it came to any press releases from Jeter, from the organization, from Commissioner Manfred, etc., etc. Uh, but I think they did a lot of really good things. One of them is, in five years with the organization, Jeter was able to help guide the team to the 2020 postseason. And not just that, they upset the Chicago Cubs in 2020. Now, you could argue after last season, a, a year in which the Marlins really regressed, that 2020 was a fluke for the Marlins, of course, because the pandemic the short, shortened the season to 60 games, The there were no fans until the World Series, they only played within their divisions until the po respective divisions until the postseason. It was a much different environment, but I think it was a success, really, for the Marlins. They reached the playoffs. It was a an expanded postseason, of course, because of the 60-game schedule and because of the unique circumstances, but the Marlins shot the Chicago Cubs in that first-round battle and reached the National League Division Series for the first time since 2003, and even in a very odd, odd season. This was far more than anyone had expected of the Marlins. Because we all remember when the when Derek Jeter came in with the Marlins that they had a pretty good core. They had Giancarlo Stanton, a guy who won MVP in, I believe, 2017 uh, by hitting 59, may have been 2018, by hitting 59 home runs the most in Major League Baseball since Barry Bonds' total in 2001, and, and the most without steroid accusations since Roger Maris' 61 and 61, most by a National Leaguer since then as well. And they let him go because, remember, yeah, he had 59 home runs, it's true. It was remarkable. He is perhaps the greatest player in the history of the organization, but they never reached the postseason while he was there. Because a, a team is always better than the sum of its parts. So, uh, with Stanton, with Marcelo Zuna, turned out to be a heck of a player. D. Gordon, who of course had, had been with the Dodgers already, but uh, Christian Yelich, who went on to win an MVP award with the Brewers and has led them to great heights, the likes of which they haven't seen in probably about a decade or so. J.T. Realmuto, a very offensively talented catcher. They parted ways with uh, Justin Bohr. They traded away all of these guys. And there was a lot of criticism directed at ownership, and, and Derek Jeter was, was probably the face of that ownership, despite not being the majority owner. Saying, you know, he broke, broke his team apart. But you also have to remember that the Marlins are not an organization with a tremendous budget. Miami is not quite uh, as uh, as famous as a city a city as Miami is. It is not the largest in terms of population or in terms of market. It's a city only about oh, I think about 
400, 500,000 people, whereas you have New York is well over 8 million, Los Angeles is nearly 4 million, Chicago is nearly 3 million, and then you have multiple teams in each of those markets. Houston's much larger, Phoenix, Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, D.C., uh, Milwaukee, I believe, all of these cities, uh, the Bay Area, uh, all, the, all these are larger markets. So the Marlins were never the wealthiest of organizations, and I think you could figure that out in 1997 or in 2003 when, shortly after winning those two championships, they pretty much broke down and traded away a lot of their players, or, or did not re-sign guys whom they had just kind of splurged on and gambled. So this was, I think with the Jeter ownership, more of a recipe for sustained success because they did not go out and get everybody through free agency or try to splurge. They tried to create sustained success through scouting. Yes, that is an alliteration. They significantly cut the budget in a smaller market. They brought in, uh, they were able to sign or draft uh, Sandy Alcantara, Sixto Sanchez, two dominant young starters, uh, Nick Niedert, Jazz Chisholm Jr. At, at short. They went out and signed Avaseo Garcia. They went out and signed Joey Wendell on the cheap. They went out and got Miguel Rojas. They've created a nice little roster that, uh, again, you know, they are not, they are certainly not the most impressive team in their division, not by a long shot. You have the Braves who just won the World Series. You have a Nationals team that you think may get very healthy very soon. A Mets team that is a lot stronger than you may think, and they are much stronger on paper, I would say. They just went out and got Max Scherzer. A Phillies team that has an MVP, a perennial MVP candidate in Bryce Harper. And it, it's a very, very strong division, despite how things may have ended last year. But the Marlins have made significant strides under Jeter's minority ownership and under his leadership. So I think this was a success in that, no, no, the Marlins did not win a championship in this time, but I think they are bound for their best stretch, their best, their best overall and most consistent stretch of baseball that, that they've ever had, because Remember, besides 1997 and 2003, and of course 2020, the Marlins have never reached the postseason. They had not reached the postseason other than the two times they'd won the World Series, and they'd just break down immediately. Jeter knows, especially with working with the Yankees, obviously, much different situation. The Yankees have been around for over a century, well over a century. They are in the largest market. They're the most successful organization. They can afford to sign people, etc., etc., so it's obviously different, but so many of the Yankees' best players have come through scouting and through the farm system. And so he knew that this was a team that had to build through that. Any team has to build through their farm system as their primary means. Free agency is just a complement. Free agency is, is something that can aid you but will not do absolutely everything for you. So I think it was a success uh, for Jeter's five years. Maybe not quite the success that people may have expected it would be or that it could be, 
but uh, very good. And we'll see what his future is. We'll see what the future is for the Marlins, and if they keep going in this direction, I, I would be really interested in finding out what the differences were regarding the future of the organization that led to this split. But the Marlins are in a better place, and I would say Derek Jeter is in a better place, and a good start to his next career, the next chapter in his career. We're back. Let's talk about the Stadium Series this past weekend. Stadium Series took place in Nashville, in Nissan Stadium, home of the Tennessee Titans, Tampa Bay Lightning against the Nashville Predators. 3-2 win for the Bolts. I, but I will say... Great road crowd, great road crowd coming in from Tampa. Um, this was uh, not just the game itself, but from a from a cultural standpoint, this was another watershed moment uh, for hockey in the South. Specifically here, this would be considered the Mid South, and it's also rather appropriate that it followed Pekarene's number retirement. I had mentioned that uh, Rene was kind of a transcendent figure for Nashville and for uh, Tennessee sports. And his number retirement, first in franchise history, came just two nights before the game. A lot of entertainment that was really culturally appropriate and paid a lot of a lot of good tribute to the city of Nashville. I know Miranda Lambert was performing during one of the intermissions. Again, both fans traveled really well. It's another thing that's. Remarkable that the Lightning have kept their core together and yet been able to replace a number of departing role players. Yanni Gord, who had the, the winning goal in the Game 7 of the Conference Final against the Isles, the, the lone goal. You had Blake Coleman, who had the the uh, the icing goal, I believe it was the, the icing goal, in uh, Game 6 of the Final in 2020. Barclay Goodrow, who was a huge role player, Luke Shen departs. All of these guys gone because you know you can't keep. It's so hard in this day and age to keep a championship core intact for so long, but you replace all these guys with high quality players. Bring in Corey Perry, bring in Pierre Edward Belmar, a few other guys, and they and they remain one of the best teams in the league with about thirty games to play. But Nashville stood up to them for a while. I know. The Predators probably stand to be one of the wild cards this year. Colorado is really running away with uh, not only with the Central Division, but with the Western Conference and with the best record in the league. Uh, as I record this, they're 20 points ahead of Nashville, and Nashville's the first wild card. Uh, Preds could climb all the way up to the two seed in the Central, but I think the fact that they stood up to Tampa and gave them a run for their money only lost by one. They had a, a one-goal lead. Uh, Tanner Janot scored early in this game, give them a one-nothing lead. Uh, Ta- Nashville is about as good as they are on the road as they are at home. They've played Colorado well at times. Uh, they could they could be they could end up being a, a sleeper team for the Stanley Cup. And if they end up playing Tampa Bay, it's just uh, th- this is one of the games where you will look back and, and appreciate their perseverance. In another part of the Central Division, the Blackhawks remove GM Kyle Davidson's interim tag. So Davidson had joined the organization as an intern in the summer of 2010. 
So let's we'll explain that in a bit why that part is important. He was named assistant to the assistant to the general manager four years ago, and similar to Dwight Schrute, was promoted to assistant general manager from assistant to the general manager. He was named assistant GM of hockey administration this past summer. So he becomes the full-time GM. Marion Hosa, Patrick Sharp, and Eddie Olchick, all former Blackhawks, uh, were on the GM search committee. Eddie Olchick, of course, is still the color commentator for uh, Comcast, for, uh, Comcast Sportsnet in Chicago. Still covers the Blackhawk games on TV. Uh, Davidson has yet to conduct the draft. He's yet to make a major transaction as of yet. The Blackhawks have not been the hottest of teams this year, but I would say that the fact uh, that these three men, re- three really smart guys, in Hosa, a 500-goal scorer, you have uh, Sharp, who was a huge member of the Blackhawk Corps, he's got a great, got a great hockey IQ, he's still a broadcaster, and you have Eddie Olchek, who has worked as a number of different jobs in this league, whether broadcaster, front office, coach, player, etc., etc., uh, Eddie Olchek, I would say in particular, is one of the more respected figures in American hockey in this day and age. I think that those three guys could put their uh, the, those three guys could be on a committee that could put their trust and faith in Kyle Davidson. Uh, shows credibility for Davidson, and I, I would say it is also retroactively a safer hire because you have to consider that the Blackhawk organization did not bring Davidson on board until the summer of 2010. And we remember the uh, sexual assault allegation and the mishandling, that this god-awful mishandling that led to the, the resignation of Davidson's predecessor, Stan Bowman, longtime Blackhawk GM, led to Joel Quenville's resignation, uh, of course caused that uh, led to that uh, awful reaction from Rocky Wirtz. You may have seen at that Blackhawk Town Hall a few weeks ago. You have to remember that that uh, sexual assault or uh, allegation levied by Kyle Beach was made in the uh, spring of 2010. That was during their their cup run. I believe it was in the conference final or, or maybe just before then. I think it was actually Game 4 of the conference final when the Blackhawks had beaten the Sharks to go to the final that they had been uh, discussing this. All these guys in the within the organization had been discussing this and then just kind of suppressed it for a long time. So the fact that Davidson did not come in until after that makes it a much safer and a much smarter hire for the Blackhawk organization. And there's a hope that they're, they could turn things around from a hockey standpoint, from one thing, but just from a culture standpoint, a, a clean, healthy, respectful culture within that front office and within that organization. Florida Panthers make, I, I think, a, a, room, a move that goes a bit under the wire. They sign Finnish gold medalist Pateri Lindbaum to a one-year deal. Lindbaum is 28 years old played parts of three seasons with the St. Louis Blues from 2014 through 2017, was selected by them in 2012. He had played in Switzerland from 2018 through 2021. 
Now, he is not exactly a you know a Drew Doughty or, or an Eric Carlson or someone like that. He is certainly more of a defensive defenseman. He has not tended to score more than a point every three games or so in his time in the NHL or his time in Switzerland, including this Olympic tournament. This Olympic tournament where Finland won gold for the first time ever in men's hockey, he finished with two assists in six games, not top-line defensive scoring, but that is not exactly what the Panthers need. This was a smart move because even though they are first in the league in goals scored per game uh, entering the month of March, and they're also a top three or four team based on points or points percentage, depending on how you look at them entering March, Somehow they entered the month ranked 17th in goals allowed per game. Now that shows obviously how much their offense has masked that, but that is obviously their hugest weakness. Now, Lindbaum could provide a good fifth or sixth defenseman, good third pair defenseman, or even a quote unquote black ace defenseman. You know, there's all people always call it the black aces for guys who are most likely scratches during the postseason, These guys who are a 7th or an 8th defenseman, they're healthy scratches, but can prove very valuable down the stretch. And we all know playoff hockey gets a lot more defensive. Now, he, he could fill a great role here because even though there are four Panthers on this team who are very skilled at both ends with a plus 20 or better, uh, better than uh, plus 20, plus minus goal differential. But Brandon Montour entered March with a, a minus one goal differential. And no other defensemen have played more than 30 of the team's 53 games through February. Lucas Carlson played exactly 30. But it's been kind of a carousel when it comes to that, maybe not fifth, but that sixth defenseman role. And this is, this is also a, a great move for the Panthers because of uh, Lindbaum's past with some of the roster. He played alongside uh, A2 Lutzerainen and Anton Lundell at the 2019 and 2021 World Championships, respectively. And he also captained the World Junior Team in 2013 that featured current Panther captain Alexander Barkov. Now, across uh, Tampa... Not a, a hockey story, but we transition to a football story. For the Buccaneers, Allie Marpet retired this week. Not exactly a household name, and it's not even going to be the biggest Buccaneers retirement of the offseason, of course. But uh, Allie Marpet retired after seven seasons at age 28. Longtime Buccaneer guard. Played 101 games for his career. Started every one of them. Playing 14 to 15 games a year. That's outstanding, especially for this day and age. Uh, made the Pro Bowl for somehow made the Pro Bowl for the first time in his career in 2021. Because I think no, he's not a household name. But then again, most offensive linemen are not household names. But I would say he was one within O lineman circles. I would say I would say I don't know how late John Madden did his All Madden team. You know his tough guy team. I don't know what what was the last one he did, but I would have to imagine that Allie Market probably would have been one of them. Uh, somehow made the Pro Bowl for the first time in his career in 2021. Uh, won the Super Bowl in the 2020 season, protecting Tom Brady. 
I, of course, had said about that Super Bowl that the most important thing was the inability of Patrick Mahomes to escape. And that's not that's not even the best way to put it. It was the importance of the Tampa Bay front four. And what went underrepresented in that game, despite Tom Brady winning, uh, of course, the MVP of the Super Bowl, because he, he did a good job of managing the game, was really good, but how well his line blocked for him, especially in comparison to that Chiefs offensive line in that Super Bowl, and what they did for Brady and for Fournette, who also had an outstanding game. Really a huge success story, even though he you know he leaves after seven seasons, that might not be the the greatest success story by NFL standards. Uh, he jumped to this point from Division Three Hobart College, upstate New York, Geneva, New York. This was only the second time, uh, when Marpet was drafted, it was only the second time ever that Hobart College had had a pro day. And he ended up being drafted in the second round by the Buccaneers, in 2015, that was the highest point, at least at the time, I'm not sure if it is ever, but it was at least the highest a player had ever been drafted to that point in NFL history from a Division Three school. You never hear about anyone being drafted from a D3 school. And so, I, just a, a great success story. It leaves the, the Buccaneers another hole to fill t- following Tom Brady's retirement. Kyle Trask could be adequate, or maybe they go out and sign... I don't know. Maybe they go out and draft somebody else. Maybe they go out and sign Aaron Rodgers. And I don't know what they do on the offensive line, but they will have a big hole at guard starting next year. Moving more toward the Southwest, Dak Prescott had surgery on his non-throwing shoulder last week. That's on his left shoulder. Though it will not impact his availability during the offseason. That's per head coach Mike McCarthy. Two things, though, that I do want to note. One is that Prescott, I would believe, and this is just a standard, is relying more on his upper body to compensate for the ankle he hurt, of course, that that cost him most of last season, the 2020 season, as well as uh, the calf that was briefly injured this year. And the, the other thing is the Cowboys need to once again address their offensive line. Even though it is still one of the better lines in the league, they gave up five sacks to the 49er D-line in the postseason in the, in the one game they lost. And they also gave up 13 total in their final five games of the season last year. That's the four from the regular season, plus the one game against the 49ers in the playoffs. And one last thing, also in the NFC East, the Giants cut Kyle Rudolph and Devontae Booker. Now, you would not expect... Either of these to be, uh, either of these guys to be monumental success stories this year. Kyle Rudolph was, of course, in the twilight of his career, coming to the Giants in his 11th season at tight end. His best years were certainly behind him. Played very well in Minnesota. I think he was a very underrated tight end. He had uh, missed four games in 2020, but I, I think that considering the lack of targets toward him and how little he was used compared to what I I think he probably should have been in that offensive play scheme, I think he was kind of doomed from the start. He had 39 targets. That was narrowly more than he had 
last year. But then again, that was 37 targets for the Vikings in 12 games. He had 39 in 16 games this year for the Giants. Had nearly 10 yards a catch. Once again, the Giants, their, their offense was their weakness. Their offensive line was their weakness in particular. So I don't think Kyle Rudolph ever really had a chance. If you put him under a different offensive scheme, and if Evan Engram performs a little better in front of him, that might make a difference. As for Booker, Booker, of course, was not expected to be the Giants' starting running back. He was the backup plan. He was supposed to be the backup. And then, naturally, with his injury history and the offensive line, Saquon Barkley missed good portion of the year. But Booker played 16 games this year. He started four, but he played all six, played 16 of 17 games this year. And he had perhaps his best season since his rookie year. He had 593 yards on the ground, 145 carries. It's the most carries, the most yards he has had since his rookie season in 2016 with the Broncos, in which he ran for... 612 and had four TDs, averaged a little over. Well, the difference is he averaged over four yards a carry this year. He averaged about three and a half with Denver in that first season. And so I don't quite understand what this is. This is a, a bit reminiscent to me of when the Giants cut Wayne Gallman, both quality, versatile backs uh, whose talents were fairly large, but we're still limited behind an abysmal offensive line that the Giants really have not, they've tried to address, but they have not successfully addressed in at least five or six years, probably since before they last made the playoffs, which even then that's not saying much. They last made the playoffs five years ago, but a very weakened offensive line. The fact is though, Booker was the Giants' highest quality running back. Uh, even when Barkley was on the field, so long as Barkley was not healthy, Devontae Booker was the best running back on the field. And so I, you almost imagine with these two cuts that maybe the Giants go into total overdrive. Maybe they go into a full rebuild. Perhaps at least on the offensive side of the ball. I think that's. I think the offensive line is the one place they nearly they really need to address. I think that, well, the D-line they'll probably have to address it well, as well. But I don't think... Skill players have been their biggest issue, and especially at that second level. A couple of guys that needed to, that who, who performed when they had to, but just really did not get the support necessary. That does it for us this week. I thank you so much for your time. Keep up with us. We'll have probably a couple of more episodes. I'll probably also be taking the week off for that Frozen final near the end of March and into the beginning of April. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you next time on Sports in the Waiting Room.